0: Hey, humans. How's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey, Human Podcast. This is episode 125. I sat down with Dr. David Tuplica when I was in Chicago, Illinois. He is a world-class plastic surgeon and fine art photographer, philanthropist. Uh, He is a researcher. He is One of the foremost uh, researchers on twins, fascinating guy, fascinating conversation. Uh, I'm really excited for you to hear this one. Just a shout out, anybody uh, if you're if you're on Twitter, please tweet to me. Let me know you're listening to the podcast at my uh, Twitter, which is Susan Ruthism s u s a n r u t h i s m, or tag Instagram Hey Human Podcast. Let me know that uh, that y'all are out there listening. That's at HeyHumanPodcast. You could hashtag it too, I suppose, but the at, at least, then I will for sure see it. Usual stuff, Amazon portal on the HeyHumanPodcast.com website uh, to do your Amazon shopping. It helps support Hey Human. There's also a support button on the HeyHumanPodcast page as well on that homepage. Uh, your support is wonderful, and it really helps uh, keep the podcast ad-free. Check out the link page on HeyHumanPodcast.com. I keep it updated every week with tons of information. And fun fact, I have known Dr. Teplica, David, for a very long time as we talk about in this episode. And I have been uh, a model for him in a million different photo shoots and various medical Uh, lectures he's given. I have played the part of musculature and such. Uh, We talk about a little bit on this episode. But there is a book that he put out a handful of years back called Intimate Decade. And it is a book of many fine art photography images that he took. They are beautiful. And I, I think I have three, four, five, something like that pictures in there. Uh, so that's kind of fun. I'll put a link to that as well. You can email me, Susan at HeyHumanPodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you as always. And uh, follow me on all the social media SusanRuthism for, again, Twitter, HeyHumanPodcast for Instagram and Facebook. Last but not least, please rate and review on iTunes and wherever you get your podcast. Thank you for listening. And here we go. Dr. David Teplica. welcome to Hey Human. Hey. <laughs> Thank you for being on the show.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: I'm very excited. I have known you, I think, around 18 years or so. Maybe, is it longer? Oh, man. It's been a what long What
1: year did I meet you in Seattle? I
0: want to say it was, I was thinking about this yesterday in preparation, and I think perhaps... It was around 2001, 2002-ish, because I, I I can note moments in my life by who was in my band at the time, uh, and so you know, so yeah. I remember particular band members, and then I know kind of around what year, yeah. And what well, year? I have, albums I have we some
1: fun photographs, and I could go back into the computer and try mm-hmm. to find them. And
0: so you are a world-class plastic surgeon, a world-class <laughs> photographer. But I don't get, I don't say it lightly. People fly in from all over the world to see you, and your photography is is in museums all over the world as well.
1: Yeah. And now also, uh, you know, my research interests are really flying. It's pretty neat.
0: I'm going to move the microphone just to scotch closer to you because you have that lovely low altitude, uh, baritone, I'll try whatever men
1: have. Ah, I'll try Testosterone. <laughs>
0: That's what we have. And lots and lots. I mean,
1: not, maybe not so much in my case. <laughs> um, I've been a very lucky guy with a with a surgical career that's really hit its hit its mark and having a lot of fun with that. Mm. Um, my f- creative photography, which of late has merged into a lot of scientific stuff, those techniques have been applied now to studying and trying to understand the human body and the genetics of anatomy. It's really neat, and so you know the big push right now is research and we're making some very very cool um groundbreaking discoveries it's been a blast it's, since i saw you last it's mm-hmm. been mm-hmm. almost exponential in you know how it's exploded it's fun
0: so uh, where are you what's the latest thing i i'm i'm not sure the best course is to start maybe in the middle and go then to the beginning or would you prefer to talk about what inspired each moment forward? I think,
1: I mean, there's a fun little story of discovery that I could probably ramble about Wonderful. and then bring it up to the present. Um, I should probably let give your listeners a little bit of a background. From my entire life, I've been doing the arts and the sciences. Mm-hmm. I had a dad who was an architect, a mom who was a nurse, and so I was learning anatomy at the same time I was learning to draw and paint you know, human anatomy and figure drawing and all that kind of stuff as a kid even. And um, really had a neat a neat childhood wallowing in both sides of my brain. Got to college, was able to design my own major to study the human system through the arts and the sciences. Off to medical school where I received art scholarships to go to medical school, which was really pretty funny. Um, doing my anatomic drawing and photographing the body, and you know, studying the broader impact of humans and, and anatomy.
0: And historically, you were one of the first surgeons willing to to operate on HIV patients. Is that not true?
1: True. Came a little later. Um, let me let me Look just finish one oh. little loop here because. I was recruited to the University of Chicago, which is an intense, intense academic place. And basically, you know, you're asked from the time you arrive what what your Nobel Prize is going to be in, right? And I was asked that in the first couple of days that I got there. I just thought that was so odd. But I ended up getting a research couple years and my my research advisor was a Nobel laureate, one of two surgeons who's ever won the Nobel Prize. And part of what I was doing was learning how to transplant different tissues around the body. Not to save somebody's life by giving them a new kidney, but to get one individual to feel whole again by using their own tissues transplanted within their own body to feel whole again. It started off with bone, and then it became very clear that I really was much more interested in fat, fat volume, the shape of the body. And was very lucky to have two years in the laboratory while getting a Master of Fine Arts, and then went off on my own surgically um, here to the north side of Chicago. But I graduated in 92, which was the peak of the AIDS epidemic, right? And so all around me were these... HIV-positive individuals whose bodies were wasting away and their faces would look like skeletons, even though they were surviving and, you know, otherwise pretty darn healthy, except for the HIV issue. But they looked skeletal. They looked grossly deformed. Because part of HIV
0: is facial wasting.
1: Yes, because the virus kills the fat cells of the face. And so you end up being skin on skull. And it is a bizarre look for humans. But I used my exposure to the transplant stuff in the lab at the University of Chicago to figure out how to transplant fat from elsewhere on the body, fat that was not dying because of HIV, back into the faces of women and men with HIV facial wasting. And that launched a whole experience that's allowed me to really think about you know human shape and fatty volumes that make us look healthy or that make us look female or make us look male or make us look young or old, right? Or how to restore people who've had trauma or how to take somebody with birth defects and make them look like a normal human being because you can shift volume around the body by transplanting living fat cells. I was doing this in 94, 95 to great, the great dismay of my colleagues and fellow surgeons who thought I should have my license revoked and would say that to my nurses. It was pretty bad. But I felt very good about trying to help the HIV population initially and then some of the other populations as the years passed to help people feel whole again. And it worked. It was pretty cool. I'm very proud that now, what is that, 24 years later, it is the hottest topic on the planet. Fat grafting is worldwide the hottest thing in reconstructive medicine and in cosmetic surgery because we now know that the face shrivels for fat volume as we age, especially around the eyes and the mouth, and that's why people look hollow and wizened and all those other adjectives that we use to describe old age, right? The witch's chin is just the little chin with the fat gone from around it. So it looks like a little ball chin on grandma, right? That's from fat loss as we age. So it's a pretty neat thing. And it's gotten um, a lot of attention in the last few years. I'm a relatively unknown guy in that world because I haven't self-promoted all of that and my patients, especially the HIV patients, don't want the world to know that they have HIV because they can look healthy again and nobody picks them out of the crowd as the HIV wasted woman. And so I've just kept, you know, what I do relatively quiet over the years, but those techniques have, you know, served me well for shifting everyone else without HIV. Back to a place of happiness
0: mm-hmm.
1: and comfort so that's one area of my life you know where the arts and medicine have interfaced and it's been an incredibly rich and rewarding thing and it continues through to the present we now use it to make wrinkled faces look youthful and healthy again we use it to make women with breast cancer have normal looking breasts again it's used for birth defects trauma defects if somebody wants to shift the way they look for gender then that can be done also
0: mm. so feminization of a male body or or defeminization of a
1: of a, of a person a male. who sees yeah. themselves as more masculine exactly mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or because of life's hormonal shifts that happen. A woman who goes through pregnancy ends up looking more matronly because certain fat pads grow in response to pregnancy and then that woman can't ever work out and look like her old self again because of the hormonal burst and size of very specific fat pads that happen to consistently enlarge in most women who go through pregnancy. Or a woman who goes through menopause ends up looking like an older woman because of the hormonal shift that happens later in life. It turns out that men go through something that we still haven't officially named, but it's known either as andropause or manopause, right? Because we don't have a uterus that stops bleeding, doesn't mean that we don't have hormonal changes at about the same time in life. And if this weren't you know, a podcast,
0: you can say I, I you might
1: know. be able to show come a couple of my own body parts to so let ah, you know. I see what you're saying. Yes. So you saying. To let you see what devastating things happen to men, right? <laughs> I used to have a lovely chest and belly, and now I am feminized. I have some lovely breasts, and I've got a little poochy, feminized lower belly. It's fascinating. And as the one studying these fat pads and how they change over time with different influences, it's very humbling, and it's, but it's kind of a little reassuring to know that it's not because I didn't go to the gym enough or because I ate the wrong stuff, you know?
0: Yeah, I think that's a really... I've seen a few of your lectures about this particular thing, and, and I remember having conversations with you about... You told me that even marath- um, marathon runners, like Olympic marathon runners could have cellulite or I remember that changed the way I mean I believe most of us have a body dysmorphia of some sort or another but you're lovely my dear (laughs) but it certainly changed the way I understood how the body worked right which was very empowering
1: all right. Which, which sort of brings up the next topic, which is that my research team and I have come to the point where we're developing this whole concept of anatomic predetermination. You are who you are because of your genetics. And you can't do anything environmental with diet or exercise to change your body shape. That is a renegade idea. Because so everybody I, believes, you know, of course, when you diet, you look different, right? Right. But it turns out that that is a size change, not a shape change. Uh, and that we can all function within our shapes and modulate our size with by eating more calories or eating fewer calories, but you're not changing your basic shape. And as soon as you relax on your diet, you go back to whatever the size was that you weren't happy with before, with the exact same shape that you had prior to dieting.
0: Hmm.
1: And so I've proven, my research group and I have proven that body shape is genetically encoded. Using an identical twin model, and we can talk about that a little Mm. because that's pretty cool stuff.
0: Very
1: cool. Um, Using identical twins have shown that your body shape is genetically encoded, but that you have some control over size. So if you can go to the gym and exercise and eat right and get your size down, the size of your fat down a little bit and be happy...
0: Great. Because the cells expand and, and contract. Right.
1: If you can shrink them down so that you're happier with smaller fat cells, great. If you can pump iron and get your muscles to be bigger in size, no different in shape, so that you can feel better about your body as a guy and not be insecure, great. Do that, right? If you can modulate both to get your size down for fat and your muscle size up for volume, And feel good about that? Awesome. But as a plastic surgeon, I can tell you that I see the hardest working, most dedicated people on the planet when it comes to body maintenance, who are woefully unhappy with how they look. And if you're killing yourself at the gym and dieting constantly, that is not a fun life, especially if you're not ending up with a a shape that's happy for you, right? And so if you have a shape that is not what you want, your only choice is surgery. Because environmental influence does not modulate shape. As we've determined with this identical twin research model that I started way back at the University of Chicago when I was, I don't know, a third my age? I don't, really, I don't know. A long time ago initially looked at the faces of identical twins. Highly standardized photographs of identical twins.
0: Explain what that means.
1: So, you know, we just take snapshots of each other or selfies on a day-to-day basis. Those are not standardized images. Those are cool little views of the way somebody looks, given a certain camera and a certain set of lighting and a certain set of emotions expressing on your face. But you can actually do scientifically standardized imagery where there is no movement the camera is exactly the same, the same number of millimeters from the face, the same lighting for everybody, the same lens, the same, you know, digital cards, the same everything, so that the only variables in those photographs are anatomic variables, and so we've been able to study the faces of twins by controlling all of those other variables, and I'm very excited to tell you that we proved that twins' faces are the same. Or they are exact mirror opposites.
0: And these are identical twins. Identical twins.
1: Not We're not talking about anybody else. Yeah. These are monozygotic twins that came from one egg. Monozygotic. If you have proven that a pair of twins is monozygotic from our research, then their pores will be in the same places or their wrinkles will have the same characteristics, like branching patterns and all that kind of stuff. Their acne erupts in the same place at the same time. Or mirrored. Or all of that stuff is exactly mirrored. Now, are they in the exact same places? No. We also learned that... what well, we realized that during embryologic growth in the uterus, that dep- perhaps depending upon nutrition, the size of the placenta, that kind of stuff that certain features will migrate different distances within embryologic segments on the face. So for example, most faces, all faces, are made up of three somites, three segments. And if the middle segment, which migrates forward, toward and around and under the nose, doesn't come all the way to the front and fuse, then you get a cleft lip and the clefts are examples when migration and fusion don't happen correctly. If you account for the fact that you can have little skin lesions in different places within the same segments of the face, then almost 100% of everything can be found on the twin. Or they are in the exact mirror opposite segment. Nobody thought to look at this in the past. And we have statistics that are frighteningly significant, like 10 to the minus 15th, like you'd have to have, I don't know, what is that? A thousand Earth's worth of people in order to have it happen by chance. So this is, it's not left to chance. Your anatomy is genetically encoded because there's nothing in the environment or your diet or your exercise routine that can create mirrored moles in your twin. It just can't happen, it's illogical.
0: There's a story that you told me many years ago about the, in Twinsville, or the, twin, the Twinsburg, Twins. Twinsburg, Ohio, yeah. Twinsburg, Ohio, and there was a set of women, a set of twins, female, and uh, the cancer on the ear. It's so fascinating. Yes,
1: so we've shown that benign skin things like wrinkles and pores are the same. We've shown that physiologic processes, like where your sweat droplet forms or where your acne forms, is the same as your twin. And in this case, my first little discovery of tumor formation uh, was a pair of twins from Texas, where one woman developed a pigmented basal cell cancer on her left ear, and a year later, it was discovered that the twin discovered by me that the twin had the exact same tumor in the exact same location on her left ear. And so there may actually be predetermination of where your tumors are going to form at age 70 or 71, but of course you don't see those until later in life, right? But if it's in the exact same three-dimensional location in your twin, for that to happen by chance is almost zero.
0: And so it happened in the one woman just a year later.
1: Well, no, because the in the second twin, it was a huge tumor. So it had probably been growing for at least a uh, year. which me, But nobody thought to look at the twin year to see if she had the same tumor, because we don't think that way in the world of medicine. Right? Mm-hmm. So clearly had been growing for an extra year and mm-hmm. ate a bigger chunk of her ear. Wow. Um, and since then, I've identified... Uh, Pre melanomas, dysplastic nevi in the same or mirrored positions. I've identified breast cancers in the same or mirrored positions. So there are potentially some very big implications for this work Mm -hmm. because if we know that a mother had a breast cancer in one breast, and we know that anatomy can be passed down to her children, whether they're twins or not, passed down to her children either, either in direct fashion or in mirrored fashion, for the exact location of that tumor, then we can predict where the daughter might have cancer and save her life long before maybe even the cancer gets to cancer.
0: That gives me the shivers.
1: But it's very cool and it's very humbling because physicians don't think this way, that there could be predictive strategies For the three-dimensional location of diseases, we think of tumors as being random, but it's quite possible that a nest of cells that has the potential to devolve to cancer has been there since long before you were born Mm. and just sits there for 70 years until suddenly it takes off. In the exact location it was supposed to mm-hmm. happens to be the exact same location that your identical twin had her breast cancer happen so we're not ready to declare that as a hundred percent accurate yet because the, you know we have to get more cases to make the tumor part of this statistically significant but if your large pores and your branched crow's foot wrinkle crease and your pigment patch your little age spot is all the same as your twin why would we imagine that other anatomic things weren't also going to be dimensional, three-dimensionally predetermined? Mm-hmm. So it's a potentially very important and valuable little finding.
0: It's extraordinary. It's
1: pretty neat. But then we took that information. Nobody believed me. They just all you know, give the big fancy keynote address to the World Congress of Twin Studies, and nobody believes me. Right? Because it's not, oh, he's just talking about zits. Who cares about zits, right? We're just talking about wrinkles. We're talking, you know, we want to talk about real stuff, right? So I decided I had to prove the point by doing a different study, which was to look at the shapes of twin faces. And it turns out that twin faces are identical for shape using some cool photographic digital subtraction techniques in Photoshop, they're exactly the same for shape, or they're the exact mirror opposite for shape. And interestingly, if the shapes of the faces are mirrored in twins, then their moles will be mirrored Mm -hmm. in every case. Mm -hmm. If the faces of the twins are identical so that you can overlap them and they look like one face, then their moles will be on the same sides. Their wrinkles will be located in the same way on both sides of the face. So it appears as if anatomy of the face and the skin are in agreement with each other all the time. That was very exciting for us. So we decided to then study body shape and we're able to prove with twins that your body shape is also the same as your twin or the exact mirror opposite as your twin. And if those twins were mirrored for body shape, they were also mirrored for facial shape. And they were also mirrored for their moles and things, their skin lesions. And so everything seems to be in agreement. And you are born either in a certain way from your parents or in a mirror opposite way from your parents. Twins allow us to see that.
0: So you're saying that people who are not twins, like I am a either a mirror or an identical you are, replica of-
1: You are who you are three-dimensionally, based upon your parents' anatomy, or, for whatever reason, you were born as the mirror genetics of whatever your parents exhibited. And we're trying to figure out how that happens and why that happens. We've proven that it's not a function of when the egg starts splitting and dividing. We proved that in Belgium with a very brilliant um, woman named Catherine Jerome, a PhD researcher in Belgium. How do you that prove twin something like research. That? Well, because because of the anatomy of the placenta, we know when the egg of the the twin pair split to become two people. We know whether it was an early split or a late split. And it was always postulated. It was always thought that the late splitting twins were going to be mirrors of each other. Mm. But we proved that that's not the case. So there's something inherent in the DNA. And I don't have that figured out yet. And I've got all kinds of little ideas about it, but we're not ready to start speaking publicly. But there's something about probably the way the DNA copies itself or breaks into um, its half components as sperm or as unfertilized eggs. that means that you're either going to be the exact replica of your parents from that side of your family or that you're going to be the mirror for the anatomy from that side of the family and that combines with whatever comes from the other half the sperm of the egg um, and you end up being perhaps identical to mom and mirrored of dad or you or whatever right Um, but this is a brand new field and nobody's ever looked at this before. So it's a pretty neat thing, and we're using photographic and visual techniques to do the baseline research, looking at anatomic predetermination. And the data suggests that you can't change that with your habits. You don't take care of yourself, you could still look like a stud. We know plenty of guys who never go to the gym and look amazing, and plenty of guys who go to the gym all the time and don't look amazing, right? Mm -hmm. And the same for women. It's not about that. It's about who your parents were. Now, I'm not advocating that you don't take care of yourself. You know, I think for your heart health, you should do cardio. Mm -hmm. I think if you want to keep your muscles strong and your bones strong, then you should be doing some weightlifting. But if you think that that's going to somehow change you over time, my data suggests that you're wrong.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Does that make sense?
0: Yes, completely.
1: So it's a whole paradigm shift in the in the diet and exercise world, and it also allows people to accept who they are anatomically, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so maybe you don't waste 10 or 15 years with, you know, protein shakes and killing yourself and blowing out your shoulders and knees with too much exercise or ridiculous flies you know, to try to get your chest bigger and then you completely screw up your rotator cuffs or whatever, right? Maybe we should be doing heart-healthy, joint-healthy, bone-and-muscle-healthy, you know, routines. And if you don't like the way you look when you're at a steady state in a healthy routine, then get surgery earlier Mm -hmm. so that you can enjoy your adult life and not have to kill yourself by, you know taking anabolic steroids or some of these horrible things that people do with the false hope that they're somehow going to change their anatomy.
0: And I thought there was something that uh, really interesting that you brought up, and I know this is a little off topic, but then um, brought up in yours and my conversations in a previous conversations um, about how plastic surgery, there's the issue of they just say, oh, woman or male, and I'm just going to carve you into the shape I know. And because predominantly women, were the ones getting plastic surgery that it resulted in the feminization (laughs) of of male bodies. I thought that was really interesting. Well, remember
1: that my field has historically been older, white, heterosexual, Protestant males who were then charged with the idea of making women feel more comfortable with themselves and with their male hormonal... Balance probably thought that meant increasing femininity and all the women who walked into their offices and all of the techniques, almost 100% of the techniques are designed specifically to feminize. Or they're designed in a way that does not address the issue of gender. And so if a guy comes in and wants to be masculinized, he's either going to be made neutral or he's going to be made feminized. And you have to take active steps to shift somebody, a male who feels feminine with man boobs or with fatty hips that happen to run in the family, right? And if you just do liposuction on that individual, you're going to create a flat chest and a curvaceous waist. And you're not going to take out all the hip fat because you wouldn't do that in your female patients, right? And there's really been no dialogue about gender differential surgery that's gender that's gendered right? And so I see guys from all over the country who yearn for some masculinity. They're not going to talk about it on TV or in public. Guys do not talk about insecurities about their own bodies, right? Women will speak to each other in a pretty open and honest way about that stuff. You're not going to walk into a locker room and have a guy, you know, say, hey, have you, you know, ever had plastic surgery because I'm insecure about my man boobs. They're not going to talk about that. And so they're not gonna talk about it with a male plastic surgeon either. They're just gonna say, yeah, I don't like these man boobs. And then the surgeon will say, all right, coming on Tuesday, we'll take care of that. But there's no protocol. There's, no, there's not a lot of dialogue about how to intentionally masculinize form and eliminate feminine traits, very little. Because of our fat pad research that I was telling you about, we are actually sitting in a pretty cool place right now to be able to consistently masculinize men who want to be masculine, potentially to masculinize women who see themselves as men or who see themselves as lean, athletic, masculinized women. I believe in embracing it all. I believe in talking to the patients about how they see themselves and how they want the anatomy to shift especially from a gendered point of view, so that we can get the highest satisfaction possible from surgery. But it means that you have to be anatomically pretty creative. You've gotta be able to identify the fat pads that feminize, identify the fat pads that changed because of hormonal influence, and shift things so that the person's brain more closely matches the way they see themselves, more closely matches the way they Exist anatomically so that everything's in concert mm. And that I think is really the, the way we should be going but there's very little dialogue about this stuff right now
0: I remember uh, you gave a lecture in Utah That I uh, was I was a model for you got, <laughs> And it was a lecture about this very thing and mm-hmm. you took sharpie pens and drew all over me
1: <laughs> the
0: the musculature and the and yeah. did talk you, you about did that. survive right? i did you, survive you survived, yes. yeah. yeah although we were going <clears> to <throat> do it i remember because uh I, I was going to be nude well i think uh and you know because it was a lecture to nurses and doctors and i remember the hotel because we were in utah Flipped out and insisted I wear a bathing suit. Yeah,
1: we were told that even though it was a private session with locked doors, that we shouldn't have nude models for a medical lecture.
0: Right, so found a bathing suit. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, explain that about the drawing, because I think that's really neat. Well,
1: yeah, in order to get to the data, in order to get to the understanding of the human anatomy that we really haven't looked at this way before... You know, CAT scans and MRIs do a wonderful job at determining the anatomy on the inside of the body. But they're all done horizontally, flat, right? So you can't look at the shape of the body from an MRI or from a CAT scan because gravity's been shifted 90 degrees. So we can't make any judgments about fat pads or fullness or shape or how people are perceived in society based upon those technologies. So my team and I have developed... um, rotational photography of the surface of the body using the visible light that a camera normally captures. And that's allowed us to study form and shape and document it for the research records. But then in order to figure out what is just beneath the surface, the fat pads, are what are really the gendered anatomy that we look at on a day-to-day basis. When I look at you, I see a lovely young lady, but that's because you have feminine fat pads in the correct places for your gender. And I don't mean to be judgmental by saying correct, but for what society deems logical for perceiving feminine form.
0: Oh, and how I see myself. There you go. There you go.
1: But the only way to document that is to pinch test by pinching the fat off the surface of the underlying muscles. And then that thickness has to be mapped onto the surface of the body. Um, if your listeners want to see, there are some examples of these kinds of pinch mappings on my websites. Yeah,
0: and I'll put links on the Hey Human podcast webpage. Awesome. Yeah. So
1: both for the foundation where we do all the research and for the surgical you know, implementation of that strategy and how to make people more happy with their bodies. So the bottom line is that there is a s- series of colored pens that are used to map the underlying anatomy onto the surface of the body and then that, can be, that information can be used for research purposes or it can be used to transform somebody to a place where they would rather be um, for their anatomy. So that's, that's another whole limb of what we've developed over the last oh, 15 years or so. And it's really played out in a neat way. And we're now getting some pretty cool insights um, and getting patients to transform and feel comfortable with themselves. Without using a cookbook approach to surgery, every single patient is individualized according to their own wishes which is really pretty cool. And -hmm. I would suggest that's probably the better way to go rather than to just cut here and stretch there and tuck this and sew that and whatever, right? It'd be much better to be able to finely carve each of the fat pads to match the aesthetics of what somebody wants for themselves. If somebody has too much feminizing fat and a woman wants to look somewhat less feminine, then we can do that now. If a woman doesn't have enough fat in certain locations, instead of using implants, now you can actually transplant the fat from elsewhere on the body mm-hmm. and put that where she might like it. Um, guys who look soft and ill defined in their own minds can suddenly look masculine and chiseled and angular. I'm sorry, my tongue. I think is, that was my stomach. My is uh, maybe they're talking growling. to each other. Their own maybe they're in a little conversation. <laughs> Um, so it's, it's a technique that can be used in personalized ways to get body shape that isn't cliché, that isn't charged with, you know, social baggage, mm-hmm. right? I'm not out there just f- hyper-feminizing every woman who comes along. And I'm not unintentionally feminizing guys by using the same techniques, So it allows for, you know, really individualized care that can take care of any gender
0: Mm. or
1: how anybody sees their gender with no presumptions. Mm -hmm. It's pretty neat.
0: Are you seeing many transgender patients as-
1: I'm in an awkward position because um, I'm practicing at a Catholic hospital and the hospital is not super excited about shifting gender. I've had to make a very, very difficult choice to stay on at that hospital, but I'm doing it because um, the hospital actually was the first in the Midwest to put in an HIV AIDS ward, and they have a great commitment to caring for the HIV community. And so even though I'm disappointed that we are not allowed to really deal with issues of gender so much, I do have a safe and welcoming environment for my population, small population, it's about 20% of my practice, but the HIV community is not necessarily welcome in very many other hospitals even to this day. So I'm making sacrifices so that the majority of my patients get quality care that's, you know, honorable and decent and safe and secure and all that kind of stuff.
0: Does the protocol for working for surgery on someone who is HIV-positive, is it a completely, I imagine, the, the same with if you had to no, operate on someone like with no. hepatitis, or is it just... Well, I'm
1: very proud that a colleague and I published, two colleagues and I published a paper back in 1992 on how to operate on HIV and avoid needle sticks and avoid transmitting HIV in the operating room. Because it became clear that you had to do something so that people wouldn't get stabbed with needles and all that kind of stuff, so we published a paper way back, um, and I'm very proud that that got picked up by you know the World Health Organization and the CDC and all kinds of other places as a, you know, suggestions for how to avoid transmitting disease mm-hmm. in the operating room. Mm-hmm. But remember that nowadays. Almost all HIV patients in America, at least, are treated with antiretroviral drugs and have zero virus particles Mm -hmm. circulating through their bloodstreams.
0: Yes, it's a really changed the game.
1: Yes, and they don't die, and they don't transmit the disease, Mm -hmm. and if you operate on them, you cannot get infected. And you operate on some other person who hasn't even felt a need to get tested and they could be wildly out of control with virus particles for HIV floating through their bloodstream. And if you're not using protection that's the same for yourself and for everybody else in the operating room, then you're setting yourself up for transmission from the non-HIV population, mm-hmm. at least the ones that we don't know have it. Right. Am I making sense? You are. So, We should be thrilled to operate on HIV patients who are treated. And we should be scared as heck to operate on people who haven't been tested. And so I think it's ridiculous. I don't think we should be discriminating against anybody. If anything, I think we should be very open and upfront about it. Mm -hmm. And using precautions for blood transmission on 100% of patients who have surgery. Makes sense. And those those same issues apply to just general population for people who want to have you know, cosmetic or plastic surgical interventions and the data that was derived from the HIV population can now be used uh, to benefit the general population mm-hmm. for understanding different fat subpopulations, for understanding fat transplant,
0: mm-hmm.
1: for understanding what makes a face look normal again. Mm-hmm. How do we, because all the HIV patients, all the women HIV patients end up looking like men because all the feminine fat of the face goes away. Wow. So we can understand gender of facial fat from that population and we've started work on that topic also. Mm -hmm. Fun stuff.
0: It's fascinating. So uh, there's the sirens are going by. one one other thing that I wanted to talk about with the before we move on to the next bit, um, back with the mirrored and identical twins, mm-hmm. um, I know, gosh, at this point I know about seven sets of twins, three sets in Tennessee alone, where they are, um, where one twin is homosexual, either lesbian or gay, and the other is heterosexual. Mm-hmm. Is is there something about the twinning—that is—that mm.
1: there is something about. I don't think it's about the twinning, but I—but it speaks to the fact that um, sexuality is probably pre-encoded, and that people can't really choose. Now, of course, I've known that for years. As an openly gay guy, I am quite certain that I would never have chosen to be gay. Right. But then at some point you realize that it's actually kind of a cool privilege and that...
0: You uh, are fabulous.
1: Oh, how many Fs?
0: Lots. (laughs) Um,
1: But a very brilliant researcher at Northwestern, Michael Bailey, showed that there's a much, much, much higher chance that if one twin is gay, then the other twin will also be gay. And so there is a genetic component to sexuality. Um, I can't quote the details of that research. We're actually probably going to get at some answers to this eventually because we're studying anatomy and there are anatomic correlates to sexuality. So for example, I've noticed in a very high percentage of um, men who we've studied for their body fat, if they declare themselves to be bisexual, then it's very common for them to have the focal fat pad thicknesses of both genders. So there may be pre-encoding of um, fatty development and brain development at the same time based on hormonal environments of the uterus or wherever, right? And that would explain gaydar, which is a fascinating thing, right? You look down the street and you say, oh, that's a masculine woman. She's probably a lesbian, right? Well, you're not looking at her sexuality. You're not talking to her to hear her voice. You're not talking to her to find out what she's obsessed with sexually. You're looking at her anatomy and making a judgment about sexuality.
0: And the plaid shirt. Uh, no. I'm kidding. I'm kidding.
1: <laughs> well, <laughs> why would why would you wear a plaid shirt, right? It's pretty fascinating. Totally... But if, no, but listen, I have patients, I have women patients who come in for plastic surgery, and the complaint is that they cannot fit into any feminine clothing from any single female clothing store. Hmm. Why? Because they have the muscle mass or the fatty volumes of men.
0: Mm.
1: Now if I went into a woman's store and tried to buy a, a, a shirt, there isn't a chance in heck I'm going to fit into any one of those items of clothing in that entire store, right? Because I have more masculine anatomy. Perhaps not as masculine as I might like, right? But um, I don't know pretty how many
0: masculine things. Yeah.
1: I don't know how many women have come in and expressed concern that they have to go and shop for their clothing in men's clothing stores because their anatomy was masculine. Mm-hmm. And so gaydar, when we look at somebody and make a decision about their their sexuality, is probably in large part intuitive anatomic perception. And that I look down the street and I see something that looks more masculine than I would expect for a woman, or looks a little more feminine than I might expect for a guy, or looks a little more prepubescent or adolescent for a guy who is what we would now call a twink, right? Sort of softly feminine. Not terribly masculine, not terribly feminine, right? But just something in the middle and maybe adolescent in shape and size and all that kind of stuff, anatomically, right? An Adonis,
0: the sort of... Or the
1: Adonis who has, well, women, for example, don't normally have love handles, okay? Very uncommon. If a gay guy does, has the masculine traits of not having feminine fat pads, and then has the feminine trait of not having love handles... Then he is a V-shaped masculine guy, more beautiful than the average straight guy, studly body, right? Mm-hmm. And so we're just scratching the surface on this stuff, but it's quite possible this is all pre-encoded.
0: Yeah, and it's uh, the supermodels; these women that are—they're uh, beautiful, stunning, but there's something androgynous about them. And oh, the, are you talking of, about the
1: X Y? Uh, testicular um, or uh, testosterone insensitivity, so that they're yes. actually men who look like women. No, I'm
0: talking about supermodels like g cell or Elle McPherson. Are these they're women? They're probably
1: triple X females.
0: Is that okay? Yeah. I know that there was like there's like an extra chromosomal no. something going on that, that no. triple X females. But so they look sort of masculine. Yeah, and taller sort than of average, feminine.
1: somewhat f- masculinized.
0: Mm-hmm. But in that very angelic way. Right. And even uh, the Fibonacci. Thing it's it's weirdly matched up with these people also the the perfection of the face. Yeah,
1: I have never aligned with that. I I have difficulty putting geometric and proportional, um, you know, algebraic proportions to human form. Mm. But I I respect people who want to look at that. I would rather look at the actual anatomy Mm -hmm. and compare the fat pad thicknesses to these for these different groups. So anatomy may be encoded from your genetics and then altered slightly in the uterus. And if it happens at the time that the brain is differentiating from, se- from a sexuality point of view, then your external anatomy may represent your sexuality so that people can perceive your sexuality by just looking at anatomy. We know that it's not 100%, but there are certainly trends. Mm. that we all see on a day-to-day basis.
0: I remember, and I might be remembering this wrong, actually, because memories are funny that way, but did you once tell me that the the breast tissue, there's some behind the knee or something? Or was that? (laughs) Am I wrong about that? That you said that once? No, and
1: then we're about to publish this. I I don't, maybe I shouldn't even talk about it, but what the heck. Um, We've identified that there are two separate types of yellow fat, and that Because of the HIV population, we've identified that there are mounds of remnants of breast fat that run down the front of the body from the armpits down to the groin. It's called the milk line in the embryo or the mammary ridge in mammalian embryos. And the little fat pads that grow almost like tumors in HIV patients are in the exact locations of teats in lower mammals. And so we have pockets of breast fat in the locations of mammalian teats.
0: Oh, my God. And,
1: that, and those little mounds are what determine the shape of the, the body that allows us to see gender. Yeah, it's cool stuff.
0: Holy moly.
1: Um, there's more of that to come. We haven't published the manuscripts. about 95% finished, and that should go out in the next probably six months. But um,
0: Does any of your research cover crime? The, the people Chimeras. Chimeras, that's how you say it people Chimeras. who have
1: two separate sets of genetics in one body
0: they think it's a fusing of twins or something that's how I've I, read the research yes it's believed
1: that. that you have two embryos that are fraternal twins that then fuse and combine and you get a mosaicism uh, sort of a you know scattering of cells of the two different people into in one body um, it's very rare. Mm. I'm not going to study that, probably in my lifetime, mm-hmm. because I'm not sure I could ever come up with another enough study samples to be able to make any sense of it, but you know, I think we'd be able to extrapolate information after I get my data on just basic anatomy, and then we could make some extrapolations to help understand that population a little better. But I, my group and I study normal anatomy. Mm-hmm. We're studying what is normal. Mm-hmm. And that hasn't been fashionable in anatomy since, you know, for probably 200 years. Mm -hmm. It was always called the dead science when I was in medical school because it was thought that everything that could be known about gross human anatomy, like big structures of human anatomy, had already been discovered. And sure enough, we come along with digital imaging technologies and photography with visible light, and we're finding all kinds of stuff, like these new fat pads that nobody knew existed before.
0: Why do you think you are so interested in twins?
1: (laughs) You had to go there. Uh, I had been studying twins for about four years when the president of the Twin Foundation that was supporting my work, the Center for Study of Multiple Birth, Donald Keith, came up to me and said, so how come you're so interested in twins? And I said, I don't know, because they're visually fascinating or something. I don't know what I said. And he said, are you a twin? And I said, no, I'm not a twin. And he said, why don't you go ask your mother? And I said, why would I go ask my mother? And he just said, why don't you go ask your mother? And so I did. And she turned white. And she said, I never thought you'd hear this. But I was told I was pregnant with twins. And then in the fourth month, I passed blood and tissue and clots and probably miscarried your other half.
0: And you did not know this until you were a grown man. Until. until I
1: had been doing twin research for four years. Yeah. Well, it turns out there's actually a scientific paper that looked at this issue, um, and I think the researchers um, showed that 85% of single birth people like me cool. who align themselves with twins happen to be from pregnancies where the mother had heavy bleeding at some point in the pregnancy, probably miscarrying the other twin.
0: That's fascinating.
1: So the Chicago Tribune writes, you know, basically, doctor searches for dead twin. With my studies, I mean, it's just all pretty silly, right? Well, yeah. I don't think it's hocus pocus. I don't think it's ESP. I think, you know, if you're primed to be curling around some little fetus in the uterus and then suddenly somebody takes away your buddy then you know maybe you feel a longing. loneliness a yeah. longing right <laughs> um, and actually kind of get a little jealous and happy and excited when you see two identical twins who are so inseparable right
0: Yes.
1: so I don't, I don't think it's a spooky thing but it is clearly there's clearly something there because we see it all the time
0: yeah I would say the connection is certainly one to what, Will you be I'm... my twin? Sure. <laughs> Speaking of, uh, of um, twins wrapped up amongst their you know their loveliness, um, your photograph of twins, mm-hmm. uh, the twin children, babies that are on the cover of Wally Lamb's...
1: Wally Lamb's book, I know this much is true. And
0: then your photography is, is stunningly beautiful. And you've done, of course, work with twins, obviously, for mm-hmm. this work. Mm-hmm. But your fine art background... You have an extraordinary body of work, of the body
1: of mm. work. <laughs> <laughs> I think that made sense. <laughs> I think that made and, sense.
0: And I thank and, you very much. Yeah, when we met in Seattle all those years ago through mutual friends and fell madly in love and have been friends ever since. Don't tell them that we're in love. <laughs> Don't I'm in love. Oh, uh. um, but um, and and you, may I speak of this? Of the that uh, you I. Became someone you would photograph with other people, so we did mm-hmm. all these great photo mm-hmm. shoots, mm-hmm. and we happened to be naked. <laughs> and, uh, I wasn't naked. You were not naked, mm. and it, it was not sexual. But what talk about I? that work a little bit, just because it's so beautiful, and I have uh, many of your images, and I just think they're they're extraordinary. Thank it's- you,
1: thank you. I, you know, I really think we are way too paranoid as a society about the human body we all have the same stuff mm. and yet because of paranoia or judeo-christian guilt or
0: self-loathing
1: self-loathing or insecurity or because of the history of objectification of the female body right i mean all this stuff is bad we got to just get over it i mean it would be amazing if we could just look at and revel in the body in a way that was responsible and joyful and not condescending or not overly titillating or whatever. It would be amazing.
0: I have to tell you that the experience, the first experience I had, um, well, actually the second experience, because the first experience I had being photographed by you was with a, a another mutual friend of ours, who I won't mention just because he's not here to say it's okay. Yeah. Um, And then after that experience, um, I came to Chicago Mm -hmm. to do another photo shoot. And this time it was with a room full of people I had never met before. (laughs) And my, my feelings about my own body at the time, I mean, I was six foot at 14 and, and you know, gangly girl, and then, you know, whatever. And then your whole, the concept of how you see yourself and all that stuff, um, Marfan. So I already had all these weird sort of things and, um, and I remember being nervous, so nervous. It was really important for me to do it when you mm-hmm. said, come do this if, mm-hmm. you, if you are interested. And I leapt at the chance because I thought it would be really good for me. And I remember being there in the room and everybody has their robe. And then you say, all right, robe's off. And I remember being scared and not scared, like scared I would be hurt or, or in, you know tra- traumatized or anything, but just you know that vulnerability moment. And I disrobed and I was standing there and I was thinking, oh my God, oh my God, I'm gonna get judged by these people. And it was all different shapes and sizes, the the Mm -hmm. men and women in the room. And, you know, I was kind of sneaking little peeks, but trying to be respectful. I know, but you know, just (laughs) because you're know, you wrapped up with these people because of the way your photographs are, you know, you become quite entangled. And, And I remember by the end of that shoot, marveling at how my mind went from oh my gosh i'm so funny looking or this bit's too big or too small or whatever and to seeing all these different body types and thinking my god we it actually makes me emotional Mm -hmm. it's it's everybody was so beautiful And, and was, so different. And so different. Right. There were people that were some were slightly, you know, what would might be considered overweight, some were underweight, some were, you know, uh more masculine and more feminine men, you know, all that stuff. And everyone was so lovely and beautiful, and it completely changed my life.
1: Yeah. Oh good. Oh good. You're not the first person to say it. I hear this all the time, right? It was
0: really beautiful.
1: Thank you. Um yeah, I hear these transformation stories. I have a woman right now who, as a younger woman, had eating disorders, couldn't see her body as as a lovely thing, and got recruited to come up and do one of the science projects to look at this, the breast fat along the mammary ridge, where we're grid mapping the body, by the way, in XY axis, and it's fascinating, so that you can actually bring statistics to the shape of the body, which is pretty cool. I think some of those images were on the website. And um, she left here with such an understanding of her own body and how it was genetically predetermined. And then she asked if she could please jump into the creative stuff. And so we did. And now I get this phone call every three or four weeks that she has to come back from very far away to do it again and do it again and she's it's recruiting people she, and she's and now it's like like what eating disorder like I don't have anything you know it's like it's, she's been cured from this psychological thing that can be so devastating mm, for is, women and men Yeah, and is transformed to love her body now which I find totally fascinating yeah Part of the issue, I think, is that you're curled up with these people and you don't really know where your own body starts and the other person's body ends and what. I, and so all of a sudden, it's just like you're part of humanity instead of being yes. this isolated being with anatomy that isn't right or something. And there's a
0: know. beauty that comes with that kind of vulnerability as well, because you really, I mean... Hard to be more vulnerable than being naked in a room of 20 people.
1: (laughs) Probably true. Did we really get 20? No, I I mean, they're,
0: they're, you know. What a great idea. Any listeners who want to be part of the big naked group? I think the most I ever photographed with was maybe eight. Yeah, I want to say somewhere around there. Anyway, I just wanted to bring that up just because it was such a a wonderful change. Well, thanks for
1: sharing that. I think it's important for people to realize that embracing the body, and wait, that, that's maybe not a good verb, but the idea of uh, wrapping your head around the fact that your body is in the context of a much broader society with all shapes and sizes and colors and ages and states of disease and health and all that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. means that you're really part of humanity. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and then it's impossible to be objectified or to objectify yourself. If you've put yourself into the context of the broader human condition.
0: Mm. It still slips in here and there, but mostly, yeah, it's hard to get out of our own way sometimes.
1: Mm. But it's a very rich thing. And it would be so nice if the world could just drop a lot of the baggage about
0: bodies. It'd be amazing.
1: Stop objectifying women quite as much. I'm not suggesting we objectify men more. <laughs> no? Although that seems to be happening, which I, is fascinating. Yeah, it is. There are now buses with rippling abs going down the streets of Chicago. It's pretty funny, actually. But, but instead, to treat the body for both men and women as, you know, anatomic and functional and appropriate. And, you know, let's talk about that in a meaningful way rather than just the horrible tits and ass crap of the past. Maybe I shouldn't have said tits and ass.
0: Uh, they've heard worse on this show. They have? <laughs> Absolutely. Then I'll go for it. <laughs> um,
1: no, so so that's sort of the broader mission of my life and work. You know, a lot of the creative photographs are really about allowing people to see, mm. you know, what contact is really all about. Mm-hmm. You know, what does it look like when dark flesh presses against light flesh? What does it look like when male flesh presses up and wraps around male flesh? I mean, these things aren't beautiful. These things aren't horrible. They're not threatening. Right.
0: They're beautiful. There's some lovely. You have a suckling image of a baby and mother that is really so beautiful. Thank you. And a lot of the fingers and toes interlacing and just... Mm-hmm. It, it really takes on this, this multi-layered...
1: Well, all the imagery is meant to be... Thank you. It's all meant to be generic. It is. There's never any identity in my f- images. Mm-hmm. Nope. It's meant to be generic to the human condition, to allow somebody to see something that they have never felt before or that they have never imagined as possible before.
0: It's fun to go to one of your shows and eavesdrop on the conversations <laughs> because... You know, knowing uh, your work like uh, I do to, to watch people react to the images and, and try and figure out, is that, an, is that an elbow? Is that a, what is that? You know, and, and that's really fun too. Oh,
1: some fascinating stories over the years. I had a show about eight years ago, I think. And a woman would come into the gallery. I don't know if you ever heard this story. A woman came an elderly woman came in with her walker every day to the exhibition and stood in front of one photograph. It's a photograph that happens to be my niece, close-up of my hours-old niece being cradled by the hands of everybody else, you know, her older brother, her mother, her father, and all the hands of the rest of that nuclear family are encasing the newborn baby in a cocoon of love, if you will, right? And so this woman came into the gallery every day and she stood in front of that image for five or ten minutes the gallery owner told me, and then she would leave. And finally, the last day of the show, I happened to be there, we were trying to plan the takedown of the show and all that, and the gallery director said to me, you know, that woman over there, she's been in here every day. You might want to go talk to her, right? And so I went up and I said, you know, ma'am, I'm the artist, and I understand that you have aligned with this image. And she said, I was the 11th child. There was nine years between me and the last, the 10th child. She said, nobody wanted me. Nobody wanted to play with me. Nobody wanted to be with me. Nobody took care of me. I was the unwanted straggler at the end of a very large and stressed family. And your photograph represents all of the love that I have never had. And I welled up with tears. I didn't know what to say. She turned around and very quickly walked out of the gallery. And I was sort of stunned. And then I thought, oh my God. And I grabbed the image off the walls and I ran out onto the streets to give it to her and she was gone. I don't know where this 80 or 90 year old woman went. There weren't any alleys she could have gotten into. I don't know which door for which building or shop or home she slipped into. She was gone.
0: Wow, that's very And powerful. she did
1: not come back the next day. I went at the same time. and So I'm I love producing imagery that, you know, pulls at people's heartstrings or allows them to feel things or allows them to see situations that they would never permit themselves to see otherwise, or, you know, inspires them to some other way of handling issues or problems. Yeah. So that's the that's the bigger point of the photography. But it's all done through the vehicle of anatomy, mm-hmm. through the vehicles of social prejudice or through the vehicles of I have a, a
0: worldwide audience listening. Are there particular museums or galleries that are permanent collections that people might... Just off the top of your head, I'll put a list on the on the Hey Human website. But... Um,
1: well, there are a number of museums. The, probably the... Biggest chunk that's in a prestigious big international museum is at the Art Institute of Chicago, the Museum of Contemporary Photography, the National Portrait Gallery in Washington, the Canadian National Portrait Gallery. Um, you know, galleries around the world have shown things. I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm kind of no. on the spot. I'm not. No, it's okay. Um, I
0: didn't expect you to be able to name all of them. it's I...
1: probably it's all this is on the on my own website yeah, sure, or someplace. CD. Yeah. yeah.
0: David, this is an extraordinary conversation. I mean... uh, Well, you,
1: baby, are pretty remarkable. You pulled all the cool stuff out of me. I don't know how you did it, but you did it. Yay. Yay.
0: Thank you so much. Don't
1: tell anybody I love you, too.
0: Yay. (laughs) Well, now I have it on tape, so...
1: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe we should make some kissy noises. Maybe not.
0: Don't want to make other people jealous. Mm. Yeah. David, thank you. Dr. David Teplica, your website is
1: davidteplica.com
0: very easy to or find, the
1: 80, or the eight oh it's eight oh three foundation eight zero three foundationorg
0: Yes, and uh, thank you for saying. I know you are you're so busy, and I'm just delighted that you took some time to oh, talk. It's my honor.
1: Yeah, so thank you. Thank you very much.
0: Yay! Bye, everybody. Kisses. <laughs>